0: and I think I was hired because I'm short and I could fit under the bleachers. Our collection is really fortunate because we actually do have a public space. So within the CRC, and you think of all the collections, the museum collections, the archive collections, we're the one that is most publicly prominent because we are a public museum. So in that respect, we are lucky for that. I'm jealous of your kitchen. That's just. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the pressure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In this episode, we're letting you listen again to our monthly webinar, Meet the Series. Every month we meet in the virtual world and introduce you to someone involved in collections, archives and the heritage sector. Our aim is to celebrate all things collections and archives, the diversity and range across the CRC, and to start this new way of shining a spotlight on examples of the fantastic work going on and the incredible people that are involved with it. The series won't always introduce a staff member either. It may be a volunteer, a society at the university, or a guest speaker from outside industry. In this episode, we meet the learning and engagement curator, Sarah Dieters. This is a reminder that you can attend our webinars yourself, getting access to more material live and the ability to ask questions on the day. But for now, meet Sarah, who discusses her pathway towards becoming the Learning and Engagement Curator at St Cecilia's Hall. Without further ado, hello Sarah. Thank you so much for doing this. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking me
0: to participate in this great program.
1: Oh, well, thank you for saying yes. Well, before we get into perhaps the bigger questions,
0: I was wondering where did you grow up, Sarah? So I say I'm from West Virginia. So I grew up in the U.S., but before I moved to Scotland, I'd actually lived in five states. But West Virginia is the state I uh, lived in the longest, so I claim to be a West Virginian. Um, but I was born in Texas, I've lived in Florida, Maryland, West Virginia and South Dakota so I've kind of made my way around. Nice, fantastic. How long have you been Edinburgh based? Um, I moved to Scotland in August of 2011 so this August will be my 10th year of living in Scotland so it's a, it's been a long time but I absolutely love it here. I was wondering what was the first job that you ever had? <laughs> Um, so, aside from kind of like babysitting friends' kids and that, that kind of thing, or I should say my parents' friends' kids, my first official job was when I was in high school. Um, the school that I went to, if any of you are familiar with kind of um, American movies, you know, you show the high school that football is such an important thing and there's like a football game every Friday. Um, so, I was hired to have the very, very important job of cleaning the football stadium after all the football games (laughs) Um, so yeah so on a Saturday morning I would get to the stadium like way too early in the morning um, and clean the bleachers but then also clean under the bleachers and I think I was hired because I'm short and I could fit under the bleachers so it was it was a dirty job but it paid really well so that was fine decent
1: decent that's exciting I was hoping that uh, before we get into the role at the CRC, you might be able to give us an idea of how you got there. So was the CRC the sort of place that you were aiming for or something that you kind of came across along the way?
0: Yeah, so um, I think I took a roundabout journey to get to where I am today. So my bachelor's degree is in music education. Again, growing up in the US, kind of the American band system is really important. So. In the schools, kids can learn an instrument, like it's just part of the curriculum and being part of band was a really, really important part of my kind of formation um, in high school. And so I wanted to become a band director. So I went to university and got a degree in music education to become a band director, but I actually became a, uh, instead of a high school band director, I became um, a high school choir teacher from my first year, and that was I think by mistake, Um, (laughs) Then I did um, middle school and elementary school music. And I did that for three years. And although I enjoyed it, I realized that um, it wasn't exactly the right fit for me. So I wanted to kind of re-explore like what I was really good at when I was uh, in school, what I really enjoyed with music, because what in my job I wasn't really enjoying music anymore, which was really upsetting to myself. So I realized that actually I, I liked school and I really missed school, but I didn't want to be the teacher at the moment. I wanted to go back and be a student, but what I wanted to study, I, I wasn't quite sure yet. So I wasn't sure if I was going to do music or something called Like I was looking into ethnomusicology and like all kinds of different uh, fields surrounding music. And I was really inspired by going to a museum and I saw a musical instrument display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And And it's such a cliche thing to say, but it just completely changed my life. It was one of those things where I saw this display. And I realized I knew nothing about the instrument that I played. So I play the trumpet and I saw these trumpets going back hundreds of years. And I saw all these other instruments going back well into the Met to antiquity. And I was like, you know, this was never taught to me. And I liked that tangible object to teach an intangible concept, which is music. I decided to study an obscure field because, you know, might as well go for something niche. Um, and that field's uh, organology. So that's the history of the development of musical instruments. And so I moved to South Dakota to do my master's degree. And again, I wasn't, I wasn't really planning to work in museums at that time, but it was kind of a, a little tinkle in the back of my head. And the program I did was amazing because it was learning um, about the, the instruments while working in a museum. So part of the, the degree um, was actually learning about museum studies, but it wasn't a museum studies program. You learned by doing rather than learning um, through kind of reading, if you will. Um, so it was very hands-on training. And while I was doing my masters, I was really fortunate to be hired on at that museum. So I worked at that museum for six years, the curator of musical instruments there. And then again, I kind of, Decided that I wanted again to further my education, and a PhD is definitely something that was always in the back of my head. And I was also ready to get out of South Dakota because if any of you know about South Dakota, it is really, really hot in the summer and it's really, really cold in the winter, and I was done with that. And so I looked around and through different conferences I had gone to, I'd met people who worked at St. Cecilia's Hall, and they Um, encouraged me to apply to um, study here and to get my PhD here. And so I did and I was really fortunate where I was given funding from the university to move to Scotland and that supported me when I was doing my degree. And I, I have to say, I just feel like I'm a really lucky person because when I was doing my PhD, there was an opportunity to work part time with the museum. And so I applied for that job and that job then turned into the job I have today. So um, I think they just can't get rid of me is really what it is. So when I set out on my career path, I wouldn't say that I was looking to work in a museum, and honestly, I didn't know about the CRC, but I wanted to work with musical instruments. And that's the big thing that I wanted to do. is I wanted to work with historic musical instruments. and if you want to do that, that will lead you towards working in a museum. And so that's what kind of led me to the path I'm on. And through my studies, I got to know St. Cecilia's and its collection. And then that has gotten me into the CRC as well.
1: Fantastic. I love what you're saying about kind of getting the practical along with the theory. It's sort of the same thing of what you were saying about um, the tangible can kind of bring you into the intangible concepts. It sounds like you're going to be very good at a pub quiz, knowing ethnomusicology and organology. That's the sort of stuff that everyone's going to ask what that means.
0: You know, it's funny though, is I've joined a couple of pub quiz teams over the years and they were like oh music you're gonna be amazing at the music round i am absolute rubbish at the music round because i've i've no concept of pop music but i have been a stellar person when they've asked i i got the winning question when they asked about an a of clive one time and i was like hold my beer i've got this
1: <laughs> now is your time
0: <laughs> well
1: people who are looking to get into the field of museum studies they're often going to get a master's degree in that field do you feel like there's advantages or disadvantages of
0: having such a degree? I think it's always good to know theory. I don't have a museum studies degree. So to me, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. I think it's always good to have a basis in theory, but I think the most important part of studying is to have that practical experience. So if you are going to look for a degree with the idea of going into museum work, Your museum studies degree might not be as helpful as you think it will be, unless it has a practical element. So while looking at your, your degree programs, you need to be really um, discerning about your degree. You need to find out if it comes with internships, if you have the opportunity to volunteer, if you'll actually get to handle objects, because so many of these degrees, you know, you, you read all about the theory, But if you've never wrapped an object, if you've never held an object, then compared in the job market to someone who has, it's great, you've got the theory, but you don't have the the practical experience. So I think there's good parts of having a museum studies degree, but I think you really need to to figure out what you want to do. You know, what is it that you want to do in museums? And Mm -hmm. is that particular degree going to help you or do you need to specialise in a subject instead and volunteer in museums? So I think it, it can go either way. It's a, it's a tricky question because it's a very popular degree and it's not a bad thing, but it might not be, it might not be the only thing that gets you the job.
1: Mm, yeah, very good point, yeah. So getting into your role at the CRC, now your title is Learning and Engagement Curator at St. Cecilia's Hall. When you aren't working from home during COVID, of course, I take it that is based at St Cecilia's Hall? That is correct, yeah. And would you be able to tell us
0: just a little bit more about, about the place? Well, sure, so um, se- <laughs> Ooh, I could go on for a long time, as Donna knows, St <laughs> so, uh, Cecilia's Hall is the oldest Scott, uh, the oldest concert hall in Edinburgh, and it is the home to the University of Edinburgh's Um, musical instrument collection. Now what we have at the building, so we display over 400 musical instruments that span the past 500 years of musical development. Uh, The focus is mainly on Western art instruments, but we also have um, displays of instruments from around the world. And that, of course, is just the tip of the iceberg of the entire musical instrument collection, because we have over 6000 objects. Um, that we care for. And those objects are stored in various facilities associated with the CRC.
1: You're listening to We've Got History Between Us. This podcast is brought to you by Voice, volunteers and collections engagement. Voice is a volunteer-led initiative from a team of seven volunteers at the Centre for Research Collections at the University of Edinburgh, and the CRC has got history. Over the coming months, we've got history by exploring the different aspects of the collections, archives and beyond to the wider museum circuit and heritage sector. We're hoping to bring you interviews, discussion panels, we'll be delving into exhibitions, artefacts and new acquisitions. We'll also shine a light on the different types of volunteering going on at the CRC, so soon we hope you get to meet the team and the wider group. I was wondering what types of people you work with. For example, do you manage a team of people or are you working closely with the general public, that kind of thing?
0: Um, So for St. Cecilia's, we have a we have a really small and close team. So I'd say in general, there's there's six of us who really work at the museum, three of us are very much kind of the curatorial um, collection side. And then there are our support staff. So we have museums assistants, we have Laura who works with us who is um, just amazing with uh, connecting with the, the um, community and with students and then there's also um, the museum services manager uh, Ruth Ann Baxter so that's the core team at Saint Seas but for myself I mean I work with those six wonderful people <laughs> I mean I wouldn't say anything bad about them right now um, but also I think of the, yeah they're listening um, of the six I think the three like curatorial ones, myself, the curator, and the conservator, we're kind of like a mini-team within that because we look over the objects. I am really fortunate that I get to work with a wonderful team of volunteers. And so I don't manage any other staff members, but I do um, work with a great team of volunteers. And so we have volunteers who, when we're open to the public, look after the museum for us, and they act as docents and tour guides and greeting uh, our, volu- or our visitors. We have volunteers who help me with um, curatorial work, so researching our instruments, um, cleaning up our database, because all databases are a mess and ours is no exception. And also I have volunteers who are helping me create educational uh, resources for teachers to use um, in their classroom or for students to use at home. So it's, it's a good mix. And then in my my day-to-day life, when, when we were open to the public, I do get to work quite a bit with the public. So I'm typically the person who leads um, tours of the museum uh, with either just community groups or school groups. Um, at the moment, I've been doing a lot of virtual tours, which mm. is um, a challenge, but it can be fun. And then I also run a program called Museum Social, which is activities for people with dementia. So it's, it's, it's very wide, which I think if you look into any education role or community role, you're going to find that you, you're going to work with people from all sets of the community at different age levels, at different levels of interest as well. So you have to be quite flexible in that respect.
1: Nice, yeah. Well, my next question was actually, if you could tell us about a project or exhibition that you worked on it. At- at St. Cecilia's, just to give the audience a kind of idea of what you've done in the past.
0: Sure. I mean, I think I think the one that would come to mind, because it's the biggest thing that we've done, is the redevelopment of St. Cecilia's. So when I was hired as a part-time uh, employee, I was a audience development assistant, uh, which was before we redeveloped St. Cecilia's Hall. And it was to look at who was using St. Cecilia's and who wasn't, which is kind of a funny thing to say, like, who doesn't come to our museum? But to figure out how we can make the building more attractive to different audiences. And that information fed into a big grant that we got from the Heritage Lottery Fund. And that money from the Heritage Lottery Fund allowed us to completely renovate and redisplay St. Cecilia's Hall. And so that was a massive project, a £6.5 million project to redo the building. And I think the most enjoyable aspect of that was we took everything off display and then we had to decide what we wanted to put back on display. So what were the stories we wanted to tell? And what were the objects we were going to use to tell those stories? it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, you have 6000 objects to choose from, you have limited space to display them. So you really, I mean, we had meetings where we were brutal. <laughs> we were just like, you know, I have a list of hundreds and hundreds of things. And you're like, Nope, you can have four, you can have four of those hundred <laughs> wow. Um, But then, you know, it, it made you think about uh, your collection, and and think about well what are what are the main points you want to get across what does your audience want to know about and how are you going to disseminate that information in 50 words or less because writing interpretation for museums is really really hard to get that that message conveyed and so i think that as a project that was it had so many challenges because it was massive but also it had a lot of rewards, you know, because we got to see it from, from a drawing and a concept to an actual physical display. And, and, you know, we've been open now for, well, when we're open more than three years and we've realized like some displays work better than others. And so now we can reflect and say, well, you know, can we change it? How can we make it better? And we're constantly learning, you know, from our audiences and from our objects.
1: So it's, it's fun. It sounds fascinating. Or the whole redevelopment uh, project sounds fascinating. Engagement with the collections or archives or materials at the Centre for Research Collections, and actually I'm kind of talking about an initiative across all archives and museums, um, not just St Cecilia's Hall at the moment, is to let people in behind the scenes or to provide accessibility would you say that your role is part of that ongoing attempt to kind of change the stereotype that collections get locked away or kind of kept out of view? I feel like um, everything you're saying about the redevelopment kind of links into that.
0: It does, certainly. I think um, our collection is really fortunate because we actually do have a public space. So within the CRC, and you think of all the collections, the museum collections, the archive collections, we're the one that is most publicly prominent because we are a public museum. So in that respect, we, we, are, um, we are lucky for that. Um, I think in general, museums and archives, like you say, are really trying to take away the stigma that these are only for an academic audience. Because especially a university collection, that is, you know, that's the perception. This is only for students or lecturers or professors to use. And so um, positions like mine, are really important for breaking down those barriers, because if you can talk about an object that might be completely foreign to someone who comes off the street or completely foreign to a student, you know, who's, you know, in, in S3, and they've never heard of an oboe <laughs> before or, oh the heckle phone. Um, but if you can talk about that instrument and make it relevant to them, or, you know, make a make a book relevant to them, let them understand how that book has, has changed over time or is, has led um, led their life to change, how it's impacted them so that they can relate to the past, then that's a really, really important role to have. And I think across archives, museums, and the heritage sector, we're just really starting to, to truly embrace breaking down these barriers. But it's hard. I mean, it's it's not the easiest thing to do. Museums in general, I mean, we're we're really lucky in, in Edinburgh because most museums are free. So you know, you can come in. It's a rainy day, you're walking down Chamber Street, you can pop in to the National and you won't, you know, you won't be charged a fee. So there's lots of ways that you can encourage people to come in your door. But there's still a perception that some people aren't welcome. So it's creating creating programming, creating activities that allows us people to know that they are welcome and that this is their history and uh, we're here to help them, help them embrace it, but we're not telling them what they should know as well like it's a way to 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 become more engaged with the past.
1: Mm. I feel like this question kind of links into a lot of what you were saying again, because um, I was wondering about the learning side of, of your role. What are you hoping that the visitors to St Cecilia's Hall, you know, perhaps with class of school kids or something like that what would you hope they gain from interacting with yourself and the collections? I mean I'm presuming a deeper understanding but of of what?
0: Well yes I mean I really want them all to go home and become organologists. No (laughs) no I think um I think it depends on the group you know what what the the outcome what the goal is sometimes it might just be for the group to understand that they're allowed to come into a university space so if it's if it's a widening participation group so say it's a school from a part of edinburgh that um is in an economically depressed area and they don't often get to go to a museum um, the main goal might just be to let them know they're, they're welcome, you know? So that could be one goal. And that's, you know, that's just a very basic goal, but it's so important, you know, for students to, to know that they are welcome into these spaces. If it's a group, you know, and you want to... The thing that I really like is for people to understand that there's always amazing stories that you can find in history. And those stories, maybe they can relate to. And so that might just spark a bit of interest in either their own personal history, maybe their family's history or where their family's from, or, you know, to think about the fact that the music they listen to today, listen to today comes from somewhere and the music of the past isn't foreign. So this isn't like, you know, because we make we make classical music so uh, um, unattainable to people, you know, we make it so um, so difficult for people to, to connect to, especially young people. But if they realize that, you know, what we call classical music, it's just music, it's just music that people listen to in the past, then perhaps they'll just get a better understanding of the fact that music changes over time, tastes change over time, and you can dip in and out of different types of music, and you can enjoy it. And it's just a way for you to connect to other people. So, I mean, I think letting people know they're welcome in our spaces, and then if they can get some kind of connection between their life and have that, have the past be relevant to their current situation, I think that's, that's my big goal. It's a big goal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah,
0: yeah, I know what you mean. Because of course,
1: you know, everything that's coming now has been inspired by what's come before.
0: Yeah, there's, there's there's so many connections. And sometimes we just, we don't think about the steps going back, you know, back in time, like what is what is the the predecessor of this? Or how do we get to this point? And I, I mean, I really like that some people that might not be relative, relevant to them at all, and they don't care. And if that person doesn't care, that's absolutely fine. But look at this really cool, shiny guitar, you know, and if that's what they get, but this is a cool design then great, you know, or if, you know, someone comes in and they don't give a toss about the music at all, but they're amazed by the craftsmanship, then that's perfect as well, you know, so you can, you can take lots of different elements um, to connect objects to people. Yeah, fantastic.
1: A large part of curation can be almost kind of like languages or trying to find the meaning behind someone, something like an artist's work, is that a creator, can become the interpreter for these collections so I'm I'm talking different kind of overseeing the management or the organizational side of practical things but the fact that a different person within your role would have interpreted things differently and focused on different things and have been drawn in different directions so do you feel any kind of pressure as the current interpreter so to speak to push in certain directions or to highlight certain
0: areas in the collections well I think I think for us, um, since we are a small team, when we were creating the, the themes and stories of St. Cecilia's Hall, we, we really did do this collectively. I mean, there's always, there's always pressure to, to um, let's see, I'm trying to think of how to, how to answer this. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we were creating those themes, we had to get them passed through like a, um, a focus group which i think was actually a really good um a way to to make sure that what we thought was important would be what other people would think would be important. and so sometimes we got feedback from people that were like i don't care. <laughs> but by having that person say i don't care it meant that we didn't explain it very well. you know, we didn't make the the reason why something was important really upfront, you know? so probably what we were saying was confusing or it wasn't as direct as it needed to be or we assumed too much knowledge of our audience um so rather than being forced into a certain direction with interpretation i think it was more a um a give and take between ourselves and our focus group and the focus group and i know it's a silly thing to say but it really focused our attention (laughs) haha on what we should be looking at um, and the the types of stories people are interested in. I think if we were to redo our museum today, we would probably do it differently than we did from four years ago. Um, And some of that is just because times change, you know, and certain aspects of society are more at the forefront than they were four years ago. So maybe we would have, you know, talked about where these instruments came from a little more or who collected them, because that's quite a, um, a kind of a popular idea right now, you know, thinking about how things were acquired. Um, and I think we would have spent a lot more space, <laughs> real estate, but we don't have a lot of real estate, to be honest, in our museum, it's quite small, um, really trying to, to incorporate more of the personal stories into the objects because people really resonate with a personal story rather than kind of um, a technical story you know so if we could have done a bit more of that that would have been great but it's it's difficult to do in the limitations that you have so um Mm. So I, that really wasn't a great answer i kind of just danced around no, it <laughs> it, was, it
1: was it was like what you're saying before you have a hundred things and you can only pick four you know it it, yeah. it will never be perfect
0: yeah but that i think that's why um digital platforms are great because in a digital platform uh, you can have a digital exhibition you have so much more space to do interpretation you can have videos you can have so much more that you can't do in a physical space because you're limited even just like if you think of every museum you go to and you think of the label of your object you know you have to convey so much information in 50 words and so by limiting that to 50 words one you, you have to think of what is the one thing you want to say and and that's what you have because really most sentences i mean you can go on forever on one topic but you have one thing you need to say but you also have to say what is the instrument where it came from who made it and it really, you know, it makes you really condense things quite down. But on a digital platform, you have so much more room to go into those stories, to look at, you know, who played this? Where was it made? Who who owned it? Like, you know, why was it thrown away if it was thrown away? You know, those those types of things you can really get into the nitty-gritty.
1: Mm, yeah, totally. You've you've written a book on St. Cecilia's Hall. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing it? Um, Or in fact, when was it published?
0: It was, I'm trying to remember now. I think 2018 it came out. And so it's a highlight book um, of the collection. And so when we opened the building, we realized that we didn't really have anything for visitors to take away. You know, like a, a, a nice souvenir kind of book. That uh, would would focus on maybe you know our top whatever number of instruments and so um, the project I, I was really fortunate to be able to to be the one who who uh, kind of led the project and so um, I worked with a publisher based in London who makes these kind of books for for various museums around the world and collections and um, they were so helpful because they they really um, they helped me focus (laughs) on what I was supposed to do. Because we knew it was going to be a book, it's quite small, it's it's 80 pages. um, And within those 80 pages, we needed to explain about St. Cecilia's Hall, highlight as many instruments as we could, and um, have the text be in a really approachable format. Um, So similar to deciding what we're going to have on display. Now we went from 400 instruments, and I had to narrow that down, I think it's 45 instruments that are highlighted so then I had to write all the text about the instruments and also pick the pictures so I, I felt like I had, I had so much power <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but again it was it was it was fun so I wasn't the only one who solely picked the instruments. so I had my list and then I sent it around to my colleagues and they um, maybe came back with some feedback about what they thought you know if I was missing something Uh, We wanted to make sure that we highlighted instruments from all the different instrument families, and then also from our non-Western collection, because we wanted to show that we aren't just Western art instruments. Um, And so we wanted to make it nice and balanced as well, and the CRC has an amazing team of photographers. Um, that work in the digital imaging unit, and we decided that if, if an instrument didn't really have a great image, then we set up some photo shoots, and, and they got like the beauty treatment glam photos, because you want them to look as, as best as they can. Um, so it was really fun, it was, a, it was a really nice experience to be able to do all of that, and to work with an outside publishing company was a, a really good learning experience for me, because I hadn't done that before
1: fantastic yeah what you we were saying before about the digital platforms being a way to bring people in or tell more of the stories um that book sounds fantastic
0: well uh, you can pick one up at St. cecilia's hall it's nine pounds and 95 cents
1: <laughs> fantastic as soon as we're all open again we'll be down there there we go This is this is so fascinating. What fantastic and important work. I'm just aware that I want the audience to have some time for some questions as well. So I think for the moment, if we move on to the quick fire round of silly questions and for the the audience, this is a little reminder uh, to get your questions into the chat box. Now, if you haven't done so already, Uh, perhaps something of what we talked about has kind of inspired you to maybe ask about a particular thing or something like that. But for now, Sarah, are you ready for the quick fire round of questions? Totally. (laughs) Okay. What was the last book you read?
0: Oh, I read The Mermaid of Black Conch. It's a fiction book. It just won the Costa Fiction Prize and it is set the 1970s in um, the Caribbean. And it's it's funny, it's a mermaid story, but it's not a mermaid story like you would think it would be. It is definitely not a Disney mermaid story.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. Can you recommend a cafe or restaurant in Edinburgh, perhaps a personal favorite? I absolutely love Dishoom. Very nice choice. I love
0: Dishoom and I love the permit room to have a lovely drink before your dinner. Actually just bought our first TV over lockdown <laughs> like I had not owned a TV until my husband really wanted one so I guess something that we have we have been watching off and on it's an it's an old show but it's kind of nice it's the West Wing yeah yeah nice one yeah
1: I mean yeah a lot of people are binging things in lockdown um, yeah. and going going into back catalogues uh, apart from St Cecilia's Hall do you have a favorite museum or art gallery to visit?
0: Ooh, I'll do two. So another <laughs> another musical instrument museum because I am super geeky um, is in Brussels and it's the it is it's got a clever name. It's called the Musical Instrument Museum, um, and it's got an amazing collection. But it's also displayed in this incredible Art Nouveau building. It used to be a department store and so just walking through the museum is worth worth it to see the architecture. The collection's amazing. And they have a cafe on the roof that overlooks the grand plots in Brussels. So it's really, really recommend. Um, and then I would say for um, an, art, an art gallery, but also it's, it's an everything gallery. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York is just, it's astounding. So it's just, it's, it's a bit of everything. Um, and you can spend days there. So and I think because that inspired me to get into my field, I'll also always have a special place in my heart for them. <laughs> Fantastic!
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Sarah, so you've survived the quick fire round of questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, the pressure! Now, <laughs>
1: yeah. now we're going to open the floor to questions from the audience. Uh, Laura, I don't. Uh, you might know better how things are looking at the moment. Boo! Small interjection here. Laura was here and did start the question and answer section, but in the world of techno joy, her audio was unfortunately not coming through properly. You can hear Sarah perfectly though, so we kept the section, but the start is just a little bit choppy on the listen back. Back to Sarah.
0: Okay, so the question is, what positive things have come out of lockdown for me? And will I continue things post lockdown? Is that the second part of the question? Well, ah, the for the museum. Um, so I think for me, positive things is I... <laughs> You, you guys who know me know i'm gonna say this i got a dog during lockdown <laughs> uh we got a puppy at the very start of lockdown and now she's a full grown dog but she's been absolutely amazing and has kept me sane during lockdown and uh, probably insane as well it's probably equal um i would say for the museum positive things that have happened that will continue is that i think we've realized that um the lockdown has forced us to embrace how we can uh, reach out to audience over virtual platforms. And so having events like this, having virtual tours, doing um, chats online, all of those things are, um, are really positive for us, because that means that people who are limited geographically to coming to St. Cecilia's aren't limited, because anyone from around the world can join in to an event like this. And when we record it and then put it out online, then also, you're not limited by timeframes, because of course, some people are probably asleep right now. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, being able to learn about new formats and to do things in a digital format, I think in a virtual format has been really good.
1: Uh, yeah yes, so that was from Riri and it was what is the process for proposing an exhibition?
0: Um, that's actually not for me to answer. What I can tell you is, for the series, so Saint Cecilia's does doesn't have um, changing exhibition space. So our displays are permanent displays. Um, Occasionally, and I think I saw this as a question pop up. Occasionally, we do change the displays, but we are um, we're quite limited in many respects because the instruments are mounted into displays. So if we wanted to change those displays, we would have to hire a mount maker. So there's a large expense that goes to that. So if we are to have a re-display items on display, it would probably be like in a 10 year plan. So, you know, we just opened in 2017. We've been looking at what works, what doesn't work. And probably in 10 years, if we get the money, then we would potentially redisplay things. If you wanted to do a temporary exhibition, or maybe a virtual exhibition, which is something the CRC is starting to expand upon, um, that would go through the exhibitions officer of the CRC, Bianca Packman. And uh, she is in charge of the temporary exhibitions, and she's also going to be in charge of our virtual exhibitions, which is a new platform that the CRC will be launching um, by the end of our financial year. So that will be starting up in August of 2021. Um, but at the moment, I'm not exactly sure how that all works out. Um, so maybe uh, in a future interview, Bianca can be the person that is interviewed and she can explain a bit more. Oh, fantastic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Christopher is asking how might you increase footfall to St. Cecilia's? And he is suggesting a cafe there.
0: A cafe would be amazing, just because I would like to have a cup of coffee occasionally, not made up in our little little tea and coffee stand. I think, I think a big thing is that we we don't have any marketing. Like if you think about it, um, there are no advertisements for Saint Cecilia's anywhere in Edinburgh, and we have been relying on word of mouth. But word of mouth only goes so far because word of mouth really means like local people talking to each other it doesn't it doesn't necessarily expand out to our international visitors if i could have my perfect situation i would really love if we could have proper marketing budget and someone who's in charge of marketing and that being via social media but also through physical advertisements throughout the city, like on a bus, wouldn't that be amazing to see an advertisement of St. Cecilia's Hall. And someone might go, "Huh, ah, why not? It's right off the Royal Mile, it's free. You know, you can pop in and out um, and enjoy it. So that's how I would increase foot- footfall. Maybe offer a free coffee and a kitten, I don't know. But, <laughs> but really, I think we're missing out on, on marketing. If we could have a cafe, that would be amazing. But Chris, you know you know St. Cecilia's and, and unless we're gonna take out one of our galleries, we're not
1: gonna have a cafe. Uh, obviously there are good historical reasons as to where it is, but also the fact that it is just that little bit off the beaten track in terms of you know people walking down the Royal Mile and not really even knowing it's 200 meters away
0: i know Um, and it's
1: quite frustrating on that basis
0: it's for all of us especially you know because we work so hard to redo the museum and then you know when you have days where not that many people come it's it's just really disheartening i think too i mean if we could physically move saints wouldn't that be great it's not going to happen it's not going to happen well, if you have, if anyone has any ideas of how to help us, we are all ears as well. If any, anyone has some campaigns or or ways to to get the word out,
1: or a tea trolley, or a tea trolley.
0: <laughs>
1: Riri was wondering how many focus groups are used for feedback.
0: Um. So when we were doing the redevelopment of the of the museum, we had kind of a core focus group that was geared just for the interpretation and the display. And so um, that was people from our uh, support organization, people from the university, people from the community, um, and people from the heritage sector. So we had a couple individuals from Museums Gallery Scotland helping out in that. So um, at the moment, we don't have uh, any focus groups going. We did a couple of focus groups because we were revamping our website. So they kind of come and go depending upon the project. Um, but we don't have a, a permanent focus group at the moment. Um,
1: Laura just said that um, she actually had some questions emailed in. Are there any differences in the museum sector in the UK compared to the US?
0: Um, there are differences. I think there are differences. going to change from even within the uk there's differences in scotland and england northern ireland like they have different governing bodies between the us and the uk i mean it it also depends if you're talking about a national museum versus a private museum there are a lot there are a lot of private museums in the us and philanthropy is quite different in the us so a lot of museums in the us rely on philanthropic donations, and there's there's really tax incentives in the U.S. to do that. So some of these big institutions will get massive, massive donations. I think working between the two, you know, publishing your education, like do you have a Ph.D.? In the U.S., you most likely need a Ph.D. to be a curator, where in the U.K., that's not necessarily the case, depending upon, again, your job. So, and depending upon the institution, are you a research employee? Are you a curator? Are you an education officer? All those things will impact the degree you need um, to obtain that job. So, it's it's there are differences, but in a way, it's almost too big of a question because there is so many variables. Um, you know, according to what type of museum you're working in, what's your focus, and what's your job?
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think we maybe have time for one more question because we're getting close to the end of our hour here. Christopher is wondering if you had any thoughts on issues around playing some of the instruments.
0: I have so many thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) All the thoughts. So our collection is actually quite unusual for musical instrument collections because we are a playing collection. Now saying that, not every instrument is playable and not every instrument will be played. Because it's a case by case basis. For us, the ability to actually hear the instrument being played adds another layer of understanding that someone cannot get otherwise, because sound is an intangible thing. So, sound, you know, it exists at the moment and then it's gone. So, if we can record it, that's great, because then someone can hear the sound of that object. And I always like to say you're hearing the sounds of the past, which is great. It's also kind of a lie (laughs) because you're hearing a modern person's interpretation of what the sound of the past should sound like, you know, but you are hearing it on an actual object from the time. In our field, there is a lot of debate as to whether or not you should ever play these objects because anytime you play a musical instrument, you have the potential of damaging it. And this is a historic object. So if you went to you know, the National Gallery and you saw the arms and armor, like you saw you know, someone's armor, you wouldn't ask if you could put it on so you could understand what it would be like to be a soldier. You, know, you can see it and you can kind of think about that. But people see our objects and they automatically assume they should be played because that's what they're there for. Yes, that's what they're there for. But you don't lay on Mary, Queen of Scots bed, you know, so these are all different ways of thinking about how we can interpret our objects. We have decided that if we can play the objects, we want to be able to do so in the most um, uh, kind of careful way possible with a person who understands how to play that object as well, because a historic A clarinet does not play the same as a modern clarinet. So the person who plays it needs to be able to understand that and be able to play it carefully. So yes, I have all kinds of thoughts. All the thoughts.
1: (laughs) We can maybe have a part to panel discussion.
0: Oh God, if you do, I think Jenny, Jonathan and I, the curatorial team, we won't come because this is all we ever talk about in our conferences.
1: Well, that has been incredible. Thank you so much uh, for all your questions today, everyone. And thank you for being here. It's so fun while access to the CRC is restricted that we get to come together like this. And it has been a great hour and everything has been so interesting. I'm sure we could have chatted for longer, but before we go on behalf of myself and Laura and everyone, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been fantastic to, officially meet you in this context and to gain a little insight into the kind of work you do. Well,
0: you're very welcome. And as I said before, thank you for asking me. It's always great to talk about the museum, the collection, but also everything that goes along behind the scenes, because I think that's that's a lot of the, the really interesting thing that people don't get to partake in. Um, so learning about how we choose things, why we play things, and all the thought that goes behind it. So thank you for asking fantastic
1: yeah Uh, we also want to thank each and every one of you for attending this is a reminder that we have plenty of other things coming up with the crc that the fantastic voice volunteers are working on Uh, so we will keep you posted on newsletters on podcasts on meet the series keep an eye on social media uh, for updates i believe that laura can link to the voice stuff as well but uh, yeah just thank you everyone again have a great afternoon everyone yeah, have a great rest of your week all. Thank you again, Sarah. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to We've Got History, the guest with Sarah Dieters. This is an episode of Meet the Series from the CRC. The live event took place on March 11th, 2021. Thanks to Laura Beatty and the team of volunteers behind Voice, Catherine Alexander, Connor Wimbled, Daisy Collins, Evie Stevenson, Lily Mellon, Martha Brownhill and Tessa Rodriguez. This episode was hosted by Lily Mellon. The learning and engagement creator was Sarah Dieters. Episode edited by Lily Mellon. Cover art by Louisa Grieve. Musical Stings by Chris Meredick. Please stay tuned over the coming months for more editions to We've Got History Between Us. You can attend our Meet the Series in person and ask questions on the day. Thank you for downloading this podcast.